This morning we are focusing on the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. And so that's what I'm going to look at. Open your Bibles to Genesis. So when we think of Christmas, we generally think, we generally don't think gospel. Our minds don't make the connection between the birth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Naturally, our minds gravitate to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and sometimes John. Or sometimes we would think of Malachi, maybe five, verse two. We generally don't think in terms of the cross and the crown when it relates to the birth of Jesus Christ. Because Christmas has been so commercialized, and all we think about are those pretty little wrapped presents. And for those of you who are really spiritual, that babe in a manger. That's normally what Christmas is about. Yet the reality is that the birth is never without the vision of the cross and the crown. If you noticed in some of the passages that was read this morning, the birth was prophesied, but it was never without his glorious reign as king. The birth is never separated from the one who will reign as king of all the earth. Christmas is not about the birth of Jesus. It starts there. But it's not just about the birth. The promise of the birth has always been in terms of both his suffering and his sovereign reign. The promise of the Lord is fundamental to the gospel. It is fundamental to the birth of Jesus Christ. This time of the year, we would do well to turn our attention to the significance of the incarnation. That is God becoming a man, born in a manger. This truth is often lost when it comes to December. I appreciated the song that was sung this morning. Mary, did you know? I think she did. But there was a line that stood out. It said uh, something like, the child that you delivered would soon what? Deliver you. Meditate on that. Christians may choose or not choose to celebrate Christmas. That's fine. But surely we can take some time to meditate on the truths of the birth of Jesus Christ. This divine promise of God is the cornerstone of the incarnation. I am going to focus on the importance of the promises of God and its fulfillment. What we see in the incarnation is the fundamental reality that God is a covenant keeper. Don't forget that. Unlike mankind, unlike you or I, we always break our covenants. We always break our promises. However, God will never let his promise go unfulfilled. Never. If he has bound himself to a promise, you can be guaranteed that he will bring it to pass. The incarnation tells us that from the beginning, God's plan has been to bring into this world of sin and death and suffering his beloved son. This is not the fallback plan. 
God didn't scramble after Genesis chapter 3 thinking, what am I going to do now? No. The incarnation has always been the plan. Which means that the promising of the incarnation is not a reaction to sin. Take note of this. God's plan to send the Son is not a reaction to sin, but really the reason why sin entered the world. Think about that. The only way that the incarnation can become a reality if, is if sin becomes a reality. What we need to understand is that there is a relationship between God's promises and His nature. He is a covenant-keeping God. It is a relationship that is unchangeable. Since God promised by heaven and earth to be Israel's father, shepherd, and king, He will be just that. Because He covenanted Himself to His people. If then that is the case, then this nation, Israel, can expect God to fulfill His every word. And He will. The nation of Israel can only find themselves in a covenant with God because of who God is and what He has promised. In other words, the promise of God cannot be removed from His work on earth. God doesn't promise in heaven and it remains in heaven. He makes a promise so that we on earth can be the recipients of that promise. His promises are never void. God promises so that we can become part of that promise. Which means God intends to keep His word. I struggle with covenantals because they change God's promises into spiritual promises. This is fundamental to our understanding of the Bible. The Bible is split down the middle. We have the Old Covenant... And we have the new covenant. Why do we have that? Because God is a God of covenant. Now while these promises may take a long time to be fulfilled, God will always keep His word. In Habakkuk, when Israel is, uh, Judah is being pressurized by the Chaldeans, God says to Habakkuk, Though my plans tarry, though my word tarries, wait for it. Though it's going to take a while for it to be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled. It will come. How do we know that? Because every promise that God has made that He intended to fulfill up to this time, He has fulfilled up till this time. The promise of the incarnation is sure proof that God always keeps His word. This can be put into two categories, and they are really intertwined and connected. Promise and fulfillment. God makes a promise, and He will fulfill this promise. God's promises are never without the guarantee that He will not bring it to pass. This is how Abram was saved, because he believed the promise of God. He knew that if God said it would be, then it will be. This is how the Old Testaments were saved. They believed in the promised one that God gave, the Messiah. 
And they lived in the reality of that hope. However, we, we believe in the promise that has been fulfilled. They believed in a promise that was to come. We believe in a promise that has been fulfilled. The Old Testament looked forward towards the coming Messiah. We, the New Testament saints, look back at the fulfillment of God's word and the incarnation. This is the advent. This is what it alludes to. The coming of the Messiah, both to redeem and to deliver his people. Now, there's always a connection to promise and fulfillment. This morning what I want to look at is just one promise. There's a number and for the next couple of years I'm going to be dealing with one every year. So one this morning. The birth of Christ does not begin in Matthew. But it is found in the very first book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto meaning first or foremost. Evangelium means gospel. This is known as the first gospel. The first proclamation of the good news in Genesis. Listen to the text, verse 14. Then Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is the main context of Genesis chapter 3? I'm sure those of you who are well familiar with scripture would know that it deals with the what? fall, deals with the fall of mankind. It speaks about Adam's disobedience and how his rebellion against God plunges the entire human race into sin. The rebellion of Adam caused them both to be in a state, a state of unrepentedness, disobedience, which distances them from God, having both the sentence of death upon them and the judgment on God weighing on them. Realizing their iniquitous condition, they try to hide their state. They clothe themselves. They are both in this unrepented state, and they are both self-justifying, trying to do something about their own condition. And in that condition of self-justification, they lacked the desire to repent. They did not call out to God. Nowhere in chapter 3 do you see Adam calling out to God. Do you see Eve calling out to God? They did not desire, nor had they the capacity at this time to reach out to God saying to him, please change us. This is a theological condition that we call depravity in the New Testament. 
unwilling and unable to turn from their sin to God. They know that their state has changed. They are no longer in close communion and fellowship with God and they cannot make things right. And so they try to cover up their sin. Isn't that you and I? You did not call out to God, did you? You didn't reach a state in your life where you decided now it's time for me to be saved. No, not at all. You try to hide and cover your sin in self-righteousness because that is all that we are. Sinners by nature depraved because of Adam. Romans 5, 12 tells us that we partook of the sin of Adam. Hold your hand here. Go back to Romans chapter 5. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Look at the last line. Because what? All sinned. Whoa, 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 whoa. He does not say all became sinners. That is true. All sinned. Ever thought of that? You know what God sees in Adam? The entire human race. And because of Adam's fall, you and I partook of that sin. You and I are in Adam in the beginning. You may say, well, that's not fair. We weren't there. Well, here's the answer. Our association as sons of Adam not only make us complicit in the act, but our relation to Adam post-fall suggests that we would have done the exact same thing as he did. So therefore, God counted that everybody sinned because that one man sinned. Because you wouldn't have done any better if you were in the garden. So don't say it's unfair. God knows that you would have done exactly the same thing as your great-grandpappy father, uh, Adam. Therefore, everyone, all mankind is presented in Adam for this reason. We are not only counted as sinners, but we partake of that sin. That's why it is high rebellion, it is high treason when we sin and we say that, oh, it's not so bad. You are living out the sin of Adam in your daily life if you've not repented of your sin and come to Jesus for salvation. We are guilty as they were. Thus the context here in Genesis chapter 3 is spiritual death, rebellion, and estrangement from God. No longer in the presence of God, as you will see. This is the ruination of the condition of Eden. Perfect condition, ruined by the fall. But what you find in verse 14, after the the immediate fall, in verse 14, you do not see God wiping out the world. You do not see divine judgment being executed immediately. You don't see Adam and Eve being thrown into the lake of fire. You don't see men and women being brought up together from the ground to live on earth and then be judged immediately for just being part 
for, for just partaking in the sin of Adam. Why does God not do that? Justly, He could. Righteously, He should. He should judge us in Adam right there and then, but He doesn't. Because God has a plan. In the midst of human failure and sin, God makes a promise. God makes a move to redeem those who have sinned. God moves to reclaim the relationship. No one can make themselves right with God until God moves to make that one right with Him. That is what you will see this morning. Understand the weight of verse 15. This will be our focus. In the midst of the pronouncement of judgment, we find a curse or a judgment on the serpent. And in the midst of this, there is hope. We have three judgments. Judgment on the serpent, verse 14 and 15. Judgment on the woman, verse 16. And judgment on the man, verse 17. It is a weighty situation to be in where God pronounces judgment after judgment. Doesn't execute it all immediately, but he pronounces judgment. In the middle of this, these curses, God punctuates the somber state of both man and beast with a message of hope. And I've, I've read this and I've, I've heard so many sermons on this. I've never realized the significance of the hope that God promises in verse 15. And so that is what we will look at this morning. Let's back up to verse 14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. It is probable that the, um, the domesticated livestock is in view here. Because God makes a separation between the beasts of the field and the livestock. Even though they're all land-dwelling, there's a separation here. Cursed is the snake above all those who are domesticated. And then secondly, above all the beasts of the field, the undomesticated animals. You are the cursed animal on the entire globe, in the entire spectrum of nature. You bear a specific curse. You will crawl on your belly, meaning that he had the ability to walk. He had the ability to stand either upright or walk on maybe four or five or six or maybe two legs. We don't know. He had legs because God snatched it away, took it away. You will eat dust. There's a change in condition being able to walk away from the dust, now you will be slivering on the dust. The only animal to have his entire DNA change as a result of the fall. Have you thought of that? The only animal that has his entire DNA structure change as a result of the fall. This is the serpent, the snake that you see. This is not a judgment on the devil. That is still coming. On Satan, that is still coming. This is a judgment on the serpent, the snake. Why? Because he did not resist the devil. You did this. 
He looks drastically different from what he looked like in the garden. God changes who he is. The judgment on the spiritual serpent, Satan, that comes later. Why this judgment on the serpent? From this point on, snakes will be the most punished, most hated, most despised of all animals in the entirety of scripture and the world. You like a snake? Nobody really likes snakes. If you do, hmm, don't know about that. Israel was commanded by God, if you read further, to avoid anything that slivers on the ground. Don't domesticate it. Don't touch it. A snake has never been in God's plan as a symbol of hope. A snake has never been in God's plan a symbol of hope. I know what some of you are thinking. It's always been a sign of deception and danger. Ever since the fall, God changed the serpent into what we see today. He's still around. When you see a snake, think fall. You could walk. Tell him. You could walk. Look at you now. Snakes became a symbol of Satan. In Revelation, he's called the great serpent of old. It is interesting that pagan worship involves, what do you think? Snakes. The occult. At the heart of their worship, there's an engagement in drinking snake blood and and all kinds of manner of snake things that is just unnatural. Hmm. In scripture, snakes are never the message of hope and salvation. Never. Now I know there are some scholars here thinking, ah, I got you. What about Numbers 21? Mm -hmm. What about that serpent on the pole? And Moses, you know, Jesus says, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. If you go to Numbers 21, and I challenge you to do that, you will look up there and it says actually fiery serpent. That is not the same thing as the serpent, different words. In fact, that serpent, some would say, has more of an angelic look, or some commenters, commentators think it was some sort of dragon, fire breathing, oh, I don't know. But the word itself is not serpent in the Old Testament. It's a fire breathing, flaming thing that they knew it wasn't the serpent. So don't confuse the two. Snakes, these slivering things, is never put in a favored light. So don't confuse what Moses did in Numbers 21 with what God is doing right here. They never provide hope and peace. That is the serpent. Nobody would put, I shouldn't say nobody because somebody would be crazy enough to do this, put a serpent as their flag. Nobody would say, I'm here for peace and I have a serpent on it. You know that he's lying. Something dodgy about the guy like that. Theologically, snakes provide us with an outlook of the fall of Satan. He's likened to a serpent. 
He first had a very high position and then he was brought low. Same as the serpent. Now in verse 15, the curse moves from the serpent, the literal animal on the ground and you can see that the literal animal is in view in verse 14 because of the reference to the other animals that he will be cursed above the other animals. But in 15, there's a shift. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now we are no longer talking about the serpent. Now there's a change. God is talking to Satan. This is the, one of the most outstanding statements in all of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Grace shines in that statement. And you're going to say, well, how? Let me explain to you, before I answer that question, Satan's strategy. Satan did not wait a thousand years before he went after humanity. He did not wait 6,000 years before he went after humanity. He would have had more people, right? I mean, if you wait longer, you would have a lot more people to deceive. Satan knew something about Adam that we struggle with today. Satan knew that if I get the head, I get everybody. If I get Adam, then everybody that comes from the loins of Adam would be just like Adam. So he goes after him in the garden. Unlike the angels, who he could only corrupt a few, well, it was a lot, but comparatively, Satan knew that if he gets the federal head of mankind, then everyone born after that person would be just like that person. Satan understood federal headship. Yet today we struggle with that. We struggle with the idea that in Adam we are all present. We are all partaking of that sin. Satan knew that. He understood that if he corrupted the head, then everybody who is connected to the head will also be corrupted. So he goes after Adam. Through Eve. Unlike the angels whom he got in, uh, uh, whom he got in whole one swoop, yeah, he goes after one man and he gets everyone in one swoop. He could not persuade the entire angelic host and he didn't need to. But he can persuade, let me put it this way, he can take ownership of the entire human race. How? If their head falls, if their head falls, then everybody becomes his children. What does the Bible call unbelievers? What were you called before? Children of the what? Devil. We were all in that state. How is it that we are all born as children of devil, of the devil? Ever thought of that? Well, because we are the children of the devil, unless God changes that state. How did we become children of the devil? You were born as a child of the devil. How did that take place? 
He got Adam. And so every child of Adam is now a child of the devil. He decided to get the head and got the entire human race. He garnished the devotion of humanity. I don't want to miss this point. I don't want you to miss it either. Satan knew what he was doing in the garden. Paul gets this. Read the book of Romans. We all sinned. Ephesians chapter 2. By nature, children of wrath, disobedient. In, all, in Adam, we all die. We all sinned. We are all guilty. We are all darkened in our understanding, being children of the devil. Satan knew this. He knew that Adam represented all of us. Look what God does in response. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put animosity between your seed and her seed. What is God saying? You failed. You failed. Maybe Satan thought that the fall of man would be like the fall, fall of the angels. Can angels ever be redeemed? Can angels be saved? No. Never. And he may have thought, if I get Adam, I've got them for eternity. Because I've got the angels who have fallen with me for eternity. So he thinks, well, maybe if I get Adam, I can have them for myself for eternity. But God throws a span in the works and says, ah, not so easy. See, God did not create Adam and therefore humanity like the angels. Angels could fall but never be restored. Man can fall and still be restored. God knew in the creation of man, he puts the capacity to fall, but also the capacity to be returned to him. Secondly, God gives man a body. Doesn't give the angels a body, a flesh and blood body. He gave mankind a body. Why? Because that means man can what? Die. If man can die, then there is a shedding of blood. Do you see where I'm going? God knew that in order for mankind to be redeemed, man has to have a certain constitution that can expire, that can die. So God plans from the beginning, before creation starts, that man would have the body that he has so that if he sends his son into the world, his son would have a body that could what? Die. You find this in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 10. For a body for me you have prepared. God knew what he was doing. This is not a reaction to the fall. God planned what would take place. This is not a reaction. Because God did not create mankind to be like the angels. God planned that man could be redeemed. Only if he does something. And this is what we see in this text. While Satan thought he had the upper hand, God shows that nothing took place apart from his divine sovereign plan. But look at the promise concerning Eve. I will put, in, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's the woman? It's Eve. Have you paused and thought about this? 
I will make a separation between you and the woman. This promise is not made to Eve, but to Satan himself. This is, in the midst of judgment, a promise of deliverance. The woman here is singular, and so it does not mean all women, even though all women will become like Eve. Well, let me put it this way. Some of the women who are born from Eve will become like Eve, not all women. There are some aspects here that does flow through to other women. But woman here is singular, and God says, I am going to change this relationship. Remember what happened? Fall. They are now under the authority of Satan. They are now children of the devil. What does God say? I'm going to do it. Notice what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will bring a separation between your relationship. I will come in and change your condition and your relationship. I will do that. Her friendship with God was exchanged for friendship with the devil. She gave up her freedom under God to be enslaved by the devil. She gave up her innocence under God to be mastered by the wicked one. And God is the one that says, I will change the fall. I will change the impact of the fall. The first message of hope is to Eve. I will change your fall. And the condition of your fall. Let me put it this way. I will save you, Eve. I will do it. Sounds almost like God is electing to save Eve. It almost sounds like there's a personal, individual selection by God to save this woman. Hmm. How do we know this is what God is intending? God says, I'm the one who will change the state of relationship between the two of you. Because God understands that something has changed. They are now no longer under his authority, but they fall under the devil's authority. And something has to change in order for them to be delivered from that state. I will cut the tether. I will break the bond. I will do it. I will cause the enmity. This word literally means personal hostility. To be treated as an enemy. To be caused to be an enemy of. I will cause Eve to be your enemy, in other words. When can a person go from being a friend of the devil to being an enemy of the devil? When can a person go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God? When? When salvation takes place. This is what God is saying. If I will save you, I will do it. What about Adam? Look down at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember what I said earlier? They were self-righteous trying to hide their own sin using leaves, not realizing that a blood sacrifice is required for them to be in a right relationship with God. What does God do? He takes an animal. 
and he covers the nakedness with an animal. And theologians and scholars say this is the first death sacrifice. I don't know. But there is a sign that God has done something in order to cover them. God provides both for Adam and Eve. Scholars say that this is the first sacrifice in scripture, not made by man, but by God himself. The first death of an animal for the covering of man, of man and woman, Adam and Eve. But then why do we have a 16? To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And this is now all women will have that. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. That is the desire to control him. But he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. Um. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Ever why wonder why some of us have indigestion, swallowing problems, problems with the food that we eat? It just doesn't sit right with you. Certain foods work for certain people and certain foods doesn't work for certain people. We get stomach cramps. Why does that take place? Well, here's why. In pain, you will eat the fruit. In pain, we are swallowing the food that God gives us. Why do we still have judgment then on Adam and Eve? Well, aren't aren't some of you Savior? Do you still feel the effects of the fall in your body? Hmm? You do. Why then does God separate himself from them if they are saved at this point in time? Why does God then send them away from him? Well, aren't you separated from God? You're not in his physical presence, right? You may have a relationship with him, but you have not been raptured yet to be with the Lord. Just because there's a change in your soulish state doesn't mean that there's a change in your physical state. Does that make sense? That is what we are seeing here. God says, I will change your state. I will save you, Eve. I will do it. But the effects of the fall, that is ongoing. You are still going to receive the effects of the fall. In pain, you will bring forth children. I was taught in Hebrew class that this idea of multiplicity of pain and childbearing is connected. You will not only have pain in childbearing, but you will also be able to bear a lot of children more quickly. You will multiply in childbearing. That is the effect of the fall, which we still have today. This should not be hard for us to understand how God is able to save the soul spiritually without changing the physical condition. You know what? It is a lie to say that in order for us to be saved, in order for us to know that we are saved, God has to change our physical condition. God has to change our physical socioeconomic status. That is what wokeness and social justice is after. 
Salvation is a change of socioeconomics. No, it's not. It's a change of the soul, despite your socioeconomic status. God doesn't change their condition physically. Doesn't make them rich. Doesn't give them healing. He allows them to die. Why? Because that's the effect of the fall. When you get saved, you still have the effect of the fall. It's a lie to believe that salvation is anywhere, in any way related to our socioeconomic condition. I'm almost done. Former pages. <laughs> How will she be saved? Well, first, God says, I will do it. And then secondly, through the promise of the Messiah. Look at verse 15, the second half. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will change your relationship. She's under you now, but I will change that. How? Between your offspring and her offspring. And this is often taken to mean a group of people. Your offspring meaning the children of the devil, but we're all children of the devil. And her offspring meaning those who will be saved under Eve. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Because seed here is singular. And I agree that sometimes seed can be singular and still mean a group such as uh, Abraham's promise in, in Genesis chapter 12. Um, your seed will occupy this land. This land will be given to them. Even though Romans, and Paul sees in, sorry, in Galatians chapter 3 that that seed relates to whom? Christ. That's why it's singular in Genesis. So here I, I, I believe that what is in view is that there is a seed of the serpent and a seed of the woman. Singular. There's an individual in view. Now there's a symmetry that is maintained in the poetry or the poetical form that is used here. Seed of the woman, seed of the um, serpent. Or I should say, according to scripture, your offspring and her offspring. Two people are in view. This does not mean that Satan can reproduce. He doesn't need to reproduce because he's already got children. That's how scripture identifies us. So it will be one of his children that will rise up against Christ. Remember Judas. What does the scripture say about Judas? And the devil entered Judas. And he went out. Hmm. Your seed and his seed will be at war. Your children and her child will be at war. There's a war between the one who comes from the woman and an individual that comes from the devil. There are those who see this eschatologically, meaning in the future sense, speaking about the Antichrist. But this is not two groups of people. It speaks of two individuals. Of this war, God says that you will injure him. Look at the last line. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's actually two different words. The first word there is, he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. You will cause him harm, but he's going to deal a death blow to your head. God speaks of the devil. 
your head will be crushed. Your head will be eviscerated. You will have a fatal wound, but he will have a bruising wound. In other words, you, devil, you just signed your own death warrant. You thought you won? Here's my victory. I have a seed that will come from a woman. Notice there is no man involved there. This seed speaks of Christ. How do we know that? Because the New Testament tells us that the seed of the woman, she gave birth to a son, which is a confirmation of Isaiah chapter 7 or 14. A virgin will be with child. A virgin there is a woman who has not been with a man. She will give birth with a child. And Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? This cannot happen. It's impossible. This is the only time in the entire creation of the world that there will be a seed given to a woman without a man involved. What is God saying? This is how I'm going to save Eve. This is how I'm going to save Adam. By means of the victory that I will provide through my seed. Remember what I said when I, when I started? That the cross is... N- that the birth of Christ is never void of the cross? Well, you have it here. Your offspring and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to be born, but he's going to die. But there's something in there that we often miss. This whole idea of crushing the head, yes, there's an element that takes place at Calvary. But that's not the final end of the devil, right? Revelation chapter 19 says that Christ will come in his glorious splendor and majesty and he will speak a word. And the enemies of God, including Satan and his angels and all those that have gathered with him, will be wiped out. That is the victory that is in view because Christ will reign. How does it reign come about? By means of the seed of the woman. He must be born. He must be born to die. I know you're excited, but whew. <laughs> Understand the depth of the mercy of God here. Both Adam and Eve chose Satan over God. Both Adam and Eve chose fellowship with the devil over fellowship with God. They chose a lie over the word of God. They chose to rebel against their creator. But it is God who moves to change the situation by giving them a promise of a seed. A seed that will come and die and reign and rule over his enemies. That is the hope that is given in the chapter of the fall, in the midst of judgment, God says, I will give you a a federal head that will replace Adam. It is Christ, the Lord. That is grace. That is undeserving provision in the gospel of God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From the beginning, God shows that he is the first and final cause of salvation. 
God shows he did not have a fallback plan, but he had the plan. This is the plan. In the midst of judgment, God shows that he can show grace. In the midst of a curse, God shows I will bring hope. In the seed of the woman who will die and reign and rule over his creation. A child born of a woman. Do not take this for granted. Christmas is not about the gifts and the presents, even though we do that. It's nothing about that. Let the world go on with the abuse and the perversion of the birth of Jesus Christ. Many will talk about the baby in the manger. When God speaks about the seed that will be born of the woman, he speaks about his death and his glorious exaltation in the victory that he will have over the enemy. That is what the birth of Jesus Christ is about. Christmas should not end at the cradle. Christmas is an opportunity to showcase the horror, the ugliness, the darkness, as well as the glory, the majesty, and the beauty of the cross. O come, let us adore him, for the seed of the woman has come. Father, we thank you for such great hope we have in the message of the gospel. Even in Genesis, you have shown forth that you will work to save your people. Thank you for this blessed hope. Thank you for the future hope that we have of the return of Jesus Christ. May this Christmas be ever special for those who do not know you as Savior. May they come to find eternal hope and eternal salvation being delivered from the power of the devil and the authority of the enemy to be placed under your grace and under the power of your Son. Pray that you would save this day for your glory. So we give thanks in Christ's name. Amen.